Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week we're going to be talking about Bolsonaro's cabinet reshuffle in Brazil, ongoing violence in Myanmar, continued aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup in the United States, and a twofer see you in hell from both Chile and Guatemala. Starting in Brazil this week, the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has fired uh, not just the defense minister, but also one of the leading figures in the Brazilian military, along with uh, several other figures involved in the defense apparatus of that country. Uh, he did this all on the same day, uh, which is a big major sign, uh, especially in a country like Brazil that has a history of military government, which Bolsonaro, the current president, himself participated in um, during the last round of military government in that country. This is a big major change. It's a signal of something big, uh, and it comes after, well, probably the biggest piece of news in Brazil since the election of Bolsonaro, uh, which is that his would-be opponent, Lula, um, an extremely popular socialist former president, who was barred from running in the previous election because of uh, ongoing um, potential charges for corruption, uh, has been acquitted. What this means is that it's possible that Lula will be able to actually oppose Bolsonaro in the upcoming Brazilian election in the next years. And if that happens, it's entirely likely, like it's possible, it's very likely that Lula would defeat Bolsonaro. Uh, Lula remains among the most popular political figures in Brazilian history it's very likely that he would be able to unseat this president whose popularity has been waning due to his horrible, horrible handling of the coronavirus pandemic. He buoyed himself a little bit with a universal income program, but that ended earlier this year. Now, what exactly does the reappearance of a major political rival on the political stage have to do with firing the defense minister and, you know, other heads of the military? Well, it signals that Bolsonaro is worried about the military in some capacity. Either he's worried about the military's power and distance from him in general and just sort of wants to signal strength, or, and this is the perspective that most commentators have adopted, he wants loyalists on hand at the top of the military, at the top of the defense ministry, in case Lula runs against him and is either elected or just like the election is happening and it's going badly and he, Bolsonaro, wants to, you know, pull some shit. He wants to stage some shenanigans during the election or possibly even wants to call a coup during the election or immediately after it in order to prevent Lula from taking office. This is exactly what a politician would do if they were worried about that, if they if they wanted to enact this strategy. They would fire the people that Bolsonaro has fired in order to be able to replace them with people who are, you know, more obviously on their side. Uh, it's all over the Brazilian news that Bolsonaro was apparently angry that these particular military figures were not upset enough uh, at Lula's acquittal. Now, it's not guaranteed that Lula will be able to stand in these elections. He has some other pending charges, but just the possibility has caused this level of political upheaval in the country, uh, a country that has a history of extreme military power, uh, not quite as violent as in some other Latin American states, but but a very recent history of military rule. And this is an election that's coming relatively soon. Uh, so it's something we're going to have to keep paying attention to. Ongoing protests against the military coup in Myanmar have resulted in more and more deaths in that country. Uh, this has led the United States to announce that it will stop trading with Myanmar just until democracy is restored in that country. That's a pretty serious uh, move from the Biden administration on this front. Other things that the Biden administration could do, you know, they include 
getting more international support uh, for the democratic movement in Myanmar. It includes encouraging more countries to move against the military coup. But the Biden administration is in a tough spot here because of the fact that the military government in Myanmar seems to be successfully um, courting support from other regional powers, including China, uh, which means that this could be the one of, well, one of the first flashpoints in a new Cold War between the United States and China. This is extremely terrible uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which the ongoing suffering of the people in Myanmar who are not pawns in some international game. They're human beings who deserve to live in a democratic state, but also because ideologies, practices, policies like those that we saw during the Cold War when the United States opposed the Soviet Union in a series of global conflicts that, that caused the deaths of millions of people are the way the right wing gained power in the ways that it did throughout much of the world. Now, the United States wasn't responsible for all of that violence. You know, a lot of it was committed by right wing people in various parts of the world, you know, that, that actually just believed right wing things. But the point is that this kind of geopolitics is conducive uh, to this all or nothing choice between uh, the right wing and anti-communism, right? Uh, and that kind of logic can lead to mass death and seeing it Reemerge and once again in Southeast Asia is just uh, it, it's a historic tragedy and it's something that we need to oppose. In the United States, we have a series of revelations about right-wing organizations within the country. Uh, a lot of them related to the attempted coup on January sixth earlier this year. Among those, uh, reporting from Politico, that uh, uh, Mr. Biggs, uh, who is one of the Proud Boys organizers involved in the Capitol attack, he alleges that he has worked previously very closely with the FBI, not as an informant on the Proud Boys, uh, but instead as an informant against uh, Antifa, uh, against the four of the left and anarchists who had been fighting the Proud Boys in street battles uh, throughout the United States uh, from 2016 up until the 2020 election. Now, his claim is that he would contact or be contacted by FBI agents who were curious about, you know, what was going on, quote, on the ground uh, with Antifa. Um, there is no response from the FBI in this particular article where this, you know, where these allegations were made. And he is making these claims as part of his defense uh, in his trial uh, regarding his activity on January 6th. His claim essentially is that he is working with the federal government, that he, you know, is something like a federal agent uh, and that he therefore should be guilty of, well, of the terrorism and storming the Capitol charges that he's been accused of. Uh, additionally, regarding the Capitol Police uh, and the coup itself, uh, members of the Capitol Police Force have sued Donald Trump for his alleged role in supporting the coup. Uh, as you know, my analysis is that it, it, it looks pretty clear um, that Trump did intentionally try to get the forces of the extreme right wing to invade the Capitol in order to commit violence against uh, the members of government in the United States to prevent the um, acceptance of Joe Biden's presidential win. Now, the fact that the Capitol Police are suing Trump is, you know, it's a, it's an it's an interesting, juicy little uh, joke uh, that the blue Blue Lives Matter people are being forced to choose between actual cops and Donald Trump. Of course, given that all of that rhetoric is essentially a mask for fascistic tendencies, it's it's clear that they're going to choose Trump, right? 
Additionally, on the day of the coup, it looks like some of the leaders of the Oath Keepers, one of the leading militia movements in the United States since uh, the 2017, you know, rise of the radical right, uh, Unite the Right rallies. Uh, it seems that they have been calling and engaging directly with Roger Stone, uh, who, if you don't remember who he is, is a political figure on the far right of the Republican Party. He's been around since the Nixon administration. He actually has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back. Uh, and the fact that they were calling him not, not just, you know, around the coup, not just on January 6th, but during the activity itself is more indication that Stone, who has previously played this sort of like insider outsider role and is known to have contacts with the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and other militia groups, it's more indication uh, that there was some real coordination uh, between the 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 fringes of the GOP that took over the GOP during the Trump administration and the actual fascists outside brandishing weapons and trying to kidnap and potentially murder congresspersons. Back before the coup on January 6th, there was a sort of dress rehearsal or a series of dress rehearsals. Uh, a lot of them took place in the state of Michigan, uh, where right-wing militia members stormed the state capitol and attempted, well, planned to kidnap the governor, uh, the governor of, of Wisconsin, in this case, not Michigan. Um, the governor of Wisconsin, they tried to kidnap her because of her uh, anti-COVID-19 policies, you know, because she actually tried to keep people safe by enforcing mask mandates and preventing the opening of major public places. An organization, a militia organization that called themselves the Wolverine Watchmen uh, that was active last fall and during the election season planned to kidnap the governor of Wisconsin uh, and take her back to a compound in order to have a mock trial and then murder her. Uh, this plan was thwarted uh, by federal authorities, and a lot of these people have been drawn up on charges of, well, terrorism and also several other charges. Recently, the news is that a judge has argued uh, that their conversations in, in encrypted chats uh, that planned this assassination, this kidnapping, uh, is equivalent to just sort of, quote, thinking the thought to yourself. What he means by that is that he thinks that this is speech that is just sort of like idle consideration, uh, when in reality, what these encrypted chats show are plans to kidnap and murder a sitting Democratic governor, uh, plans made by extreme right-wing militia forces. And so in light of his belief that this is just sort of like, I guess, banter or just an idle thought instead of plans, uh, he's acquitted them on these terrorism charges. Uh, so they aren't going to face them. Uh, the prosecution has said that they're going to appeal that decision. And it's entirely possible that these people will face this charge. But the point here is that there are many forces within the United States government who will continue to defend right-wing activity, even when it is specifically anti-government right-wing activity. And this is something we're going to keep seeing as more and more people are actually brought to trial regarding their behavior on January 6th and leading up to it. Now, in well, not lighter because it's disgusting and racist, but potentially weirder news. Um, the son of, you know, beloved celebrity Tom Hanks, uh, whose name is Chet, uh, Chet Hanks, uh, who's a supposed rapper and, you know, quote, influencer type celebrity guy, um, has come out with a new line of clothing. Uh, and the slogan and icon for this line of clothing is the text White Boy Summer. Um, in a sort of like, 
you know, Nazi oldie time German font. Now, that would be funny if it weren't disgusting and clearly an attempt to advance and profit off of the rise of the right wing in the United States and specifically um, the both misogynist, sexist, homophobic, racist valences of the extreme right in the United States and also the fetishization of the Nazi past. Now, that's not funny. It's disgusting. And unfortunately, that's no April Fool's joke. Uh, That shit happened uh, earlier this week. Finally, another double see you in hell this week, both from Latin America and both from April 1st. Uh, the first, uh, chronologically and also just in my notes here, is Jaime Guzman, uh, a Chilean uh, jurist and the principal author of the 1980 Chilean constitution, which has been recently slated to be rewritten. He is a precocious political author and the founder of the leading student movement at the Universidad Católica de Chile, uh, the country's leading university. And the student movement, called Gremialismo, uh, has run that student government for most of the last like 50 years. Guzman is specifically connected to the legal and governmental side of Chile's neoliberal transition. Uh, in his authorship of that country's constitution, he enshrined a lot of neoliberal principles, specifically the ones that people are trying to get rid of in this rewrite that, that's happening, you know, ongoing. Uh, and his position in Chile's ideological spectrum is that he's a bridge uh, between far-right post-fascism, Catholic conservatism, and neoliberal economic policies. Now, after the dictatorship, uh, he continued uh, his role as a law professor and a sort of public intellectual. He stood for some, you know, minor political positions, and he stayed that way as a, you know, as a respected by many in the establishment public intellectual, despite his involvement in the enshrining of, you know, extremely discriminatory and oppressive neoliberal practices, and also his involvement in a murderous military illegal government. Uh, He continued in that capacity uh, until his assassination uh, by Marxist guerrillas as he left the campus, the Universidad Católica campus, on April 1st, 1991. He was followed in that death by the second figure that I'm going to talk to by several years. Uh, The second figure this week is Efrain Rios Montt, uh, who also died on April 1st. Uh, Rios Montt was a Guatemalan military leader and, you know, de facto president during the early 1980s. We're talking 82, 83. And he presided over one of the deadliest periods uh, in what is called the Guatemalan Civil War, but what might more justly be called a period of genocidal violence committed by right-wing military forces against uh, primarily indigenous populations in that country. Uh, Rios Montt was a radical Protestant, which is a relatively new thing in Latin America at the time, although that's increasingly normal. Um, He staged a coup in 1982 against the then military government uh, and enacted a, what is called a scorched earth policy, a genocidal campaign, Uh, against Mayan peoples in the west and northwest of Guatemala. Um, The supposed theory behind this kind of military activity is to eliminate the people who might support the guerrilla forces that you're fighting. Um, This is the kind of tactic that uh, the Guatemalan military might have learned in the School of the Americas, uh, where the United States taught, you know, so-called anti-guerrilla tactics, to many Latin American military forces. Uh, The United States learned them in Vietnam, where they learned them from the French, uh, who had practiced them in Vietnam and Algeria in their uh, colonialist struggles to maintain power in those regions. Uh, 
Briosmont's government was responsible for thousands dead each month uh, and unknown others displaced or disappeared uh, in this violence. Briosmont uh, had a later political career after the advent of peace in Guatemala, uh, running um, effectively running on the legacy of his military control on on the fact that he massacred so many people. And this was popular enough that he had reasonable success maintaining his position as a, you know, as a political figure and as a force to be reckoned with. Later on, uh, truth commissions both in Guatemala and in Spain uh, led to trials uh, for him, for his crimes against humanity, uh, for his genocide. And he was eventually tried and convicted in 2013 in Guatemala, uh, the first former leader uh, of a country to be convicted of genocide in that country. Unfortunately, this uh, charge was then quickly overturned and the trial was suspended due to his alleged senility, uh, which is the exact same defense that Pinochet used to prevent himself from facing justice. This means that unfortunately, Rios Montt died peacefully uh, in Guatemala City of a heart attack on April 1st, 2018. So, Jaime Guzman and Rios Montt, we will see you in hell. Thank you for listening to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And if you found this podcast informational, educational, useful, uh, please share it with friends, family, and comrades, and subscribe so that you don't miss a new episode. And of course, if you really thought it was useful, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. All right. I will talk to you next week. Bye.